Okay, well, what we're going to do tonight is, um, actually, I can't really blame this on Pastor Matt. I wouldn't say that it seems like uh, somehow he keeps sticking me with the awkward text in Joshua, but uh, I told him that I was going to take up this topic uh, just in case in chapter 6, some of you, I'm sure, had some questions, and Wednesday night I got some strange looks, as I'm sure I'll get some tonight, so we're going to have a unique conversation that needs to be had so that maybe nobody's ever answered this question for you before. I don't know. Let's talk and we'll see. All right, first of all, what do you do when you encounter something in the Bible that makes you uncomfortable or that you don't understand or that you just don't like? You come across a passage of Scripture and maybe you find it offensive. Maybe you find it utterly and completely different than the way you believe or that you think is appropriate to believe. And if you're thinking right now, like, what are you talking about? Well, then you're not reading your Bible. Because if you're reading it, then you know that there are many places in Scripture that are hard. And I don't just mean hard to understand. I mean hard to, to take. If we come across passages like this that are difficult and that we don't like and we don't agree with, well, one of the common things to do is just to ignore it. But if we choose to ignore, then, which is often the case, then what happens is that those who are hostile to God use passages like that to say that say politically incorrect things to ridicule Scripture and those who believe it. And so what happens is, is that all these places where the Bible says things that are offensive in our culture now, what happens is, if we just ignore them, we do ourselves and God a great disservice, first of all, because we're ignoring the fact that it was, it was spoken by God and intended for us. But also, we're unable to defend what the Scripture says because we haven't taken the time to work through it. So that when, Because believe me, when the critics come, they're not coming at you with John 3.16. That's not what they're... They're coming at you with the passage I'm going to talk about tonight or passages similar to that. That's going to be what they are, I mean, you know, it, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you're unaware of what's going on in the world today. Maybe you don't know who Richard Dawkins was who just recently died. Maybe you don't, you're not aware that the God delusion sold millions upon millions upon millions of copies. Maybe you're unaware that the new atheism is a, it's a big deal and they're very bold in the things that they say. And these are the kinds of texts like we find in Joshua that they attack and that most Christians just stand there like deer in the headlights unable to conjure up anything to say in return when they hear things like, how would anyone with half a brain believe in a God who would say something like that? So here's the answer. The answer is, most times, we apologize for God, Christians, the Bible, 
And then we attempt to remake God into man's image in the hopes of presenting a more attractive God. Now, believe me, there are texts, there are passages of Scripture in the Bible that when somebody brings those out at you, a lot of times I hear people, they just say, well, you know, I know it says that, but I promise you it's not all like that. So what, here's what happens. When we start apologizing, instead of worshiping God, we're worshiping our emotions and our thoughts and our experiences. But you see, because if the problem is that it makes you uncomfortable, if the problem is you don't like it, if the problem is that you, you don't know how to relate it, if the problem is, well, then that's your problem. That's our problem. That's not God's problem. So what we got to do is we got to work through it. We got to figure it out. We got to we got to get in there and and understand that the same God who spoke John three sixteen also spoke texts that are very hard to get through. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to deal with an example that was in Joshua six that. I knew it was going to spark some thought. But it didn't spark as much thought as I had anticipated. I was hoping that it would be, I was hoping I'd get at least five or ten emails about it. Uh, Matt did deal with it. So what we're going to do is deal with a text that many people find scary and offensive. Scary and offensive. Now, you know, I love anticipation. To a fault. So I just, I just keep on. Now I'm going to tell you three things from me to you before we get to the text. Number one, I want you to know that I'm more fearful of God than I am of people's reactions to Him. So if anything I say tonight offends you, I don't want it to offend you. I, I like it when people like what I say. But that's really not my primary concern. So just know up front that my goal is to be faithful to God and whatever people think about it is honestly their problem. Number two. I'm not here to convince people that God's worthy to be worshipped. I think that's a huge mistake. But to worship Him through pro proclaiming His Word. The way to exalt the worthiness of God is to proclaim His Word. Not to try to convince people. You notice when, it, when somebody goes to, well, you know, God's not always like that. And, you know, His good things outweigh His bad things. and That would never convince anybody to become a God worshiper. Never. There's no power in that. And number three, I'm not here to defend God, but to declare that He is, that who He is, and what He has done. That's all I'm declaring. So, the God of this Bible 
It's not going to fit into my box. It's not going to fit into your box. And try as we might, if we're faithful to the text, he's never going to fit in the box. So here's the principle. The principle is we must accept God as he has revealed himself or we won't follow him in the way that he demands, which to him is not following him at all. You see, the truth of the matter is, is that the world is literally filled with people who honestly believe they're following God. But if you read the Bible, it will become crystal clear to you in no amount of time whatsoever that God only accepts fellowship on His terms. And any other way of attempting to follow Him, He rejects. Matthew 7, 21, that's all the people who will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? Haven't I been doing this? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You're a worker of iniquity. Those are people in utter shock and awe. They honestly believed that what they were doing was acceptable to God. But it wasn't because it was on their own terms. In Luke chapter 9, where Jesus says, Somebody comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you, Lord, but I got to go home and say goodbye to my family. And he says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. What do you do with that? What? Does that sound like a God who's going, well, you know, just do your, you know, just figure it out, whatever, it'll be okay. So in other words, we must remain vigilant very vigilant, that we not try to remake God into a more palatable image that doesn't kill anyone, that loves everyone the same, and allows me to follow how I want. That God's not in the Bible. He's just not. And He's certainly not in our text. Joshua 6, verse 21. See, here we go. The entire study on one verse of Scripture. The Bible says that when the children of Israel went into Jericho, the Scripture says, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. So how does that make you feel? What kind of God do you serve? You believe in a God that just obliterates people, that just goes in and kills everybody, men, women, children. This is the God you serve? Everyone, they're dead. Is that fair? Is that okay? We just going to roll with that? What do you do when somebody... Because let me tell you something. The, the atheists, that's what they want to know. They want to know how the God of your Bible... How, how is the God of your Bible different from jihad? Huh? How's it different from terrorists who are trying to obliterate us? Looks like the same thing, they'll say. What did those people do to God? What did those people do to Israel? They were just living their life over there. 
So how do we explain the fact that God evidently commanded Israel to exterminate the entire population of Jericho, men, women, and children? How do we explain that? Well, one thing I can tell you for sure is I can tell you all the ways to explain it away because I've heard a gazillion of them. And unfortunately, I've got commentaries that try to explain it away. Oh, these numerous attempts have been made to dismiss the problem, explain it away. They've got all sorts of creative ways of sort of softening the blow, making it more tolerable. Primarily, this is what you're going to hear. This will be your main, this will be the main way that people try to get around it. They'll say, well, it was Joshua's decision, not God's. You see, we're not sure. The assumption is that most people believe Joshua wrote the book of Joshua. But irregardless, God wrote it. Whoever, whatever human vessel he used as irrelevant information. But the point being is that let's suppose that Joshua authored the book. Well, it was his decision to obliterate the people. And that sometime after, well, that's not going to look very good. So since we went in, God didn't really command us to do that, but that's what we did. So the way that we're going to, you know, make us sound like we're not that bad is we're going to say, well, God told us to do that. But in reality, there's a lot of people that believe God did not command Joshua to exterminate the people in Canaan. Or the Israelites themselves took the initiative to slaughter the Canaanites and then they later rationalized it as the will of God. Well, that would be a sensible thing to uh, come up with, except for it's not true. Take Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you will possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you are. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them. I think he's pretty clear. What do you think? Now, if this theory were true, which it can't be, because obviously, if it was, if it was Joshua's decision or it was the Israelites that took the initiative, why is there no corrective action or consequence for disobeying the Lord's command? Case in point. As soon as the Israelites move from Jericho, they go to Ai, which is what we'll talk about next week. And they did everything they were supposed to do in Ai, except for one small little detail. You ever heard the story? Just one. And guess what? Did God say, ah, don't worry about it, you, you did a pretty good job? No. So if God had commanded Joshua or Israel not to obliterate everyone, and they did, do you think that they would have just moved on to the next place? Or would there have been 
we're not going to pass go until we resolve the problem that we just had. Well, of course. So clearly, what happened in Jericho was obedience to the command of God. So now we've got to decide what are we going to do with that. See, many people are inclined to read texts such as Joshua 6.21 and apologize. Well, I don't know if there's a screen for this. Anyway, it's apologize. Apologize for God. Say things like, well, we're sorry that God did that. Please give him a chance. Really, his positive characteristics, his good deeds outweigh his bad deeds. No, no, we shouldn't apologize to God. We should in no way. There it is. We should in no way apologize for God, but rather we should apologize to him. We should apologize to him. The problem isn't that God is evil. The problem is that we are. It isn't that God has mistreated us or anyone else, but that we have mistreated him. Now, I had a lot of fun with this on Wednesday night. I'll be truthful with you. We, uh, I talked about the fact that, you know, if the Bible said that the children of Israel went into Jericho and killed all the men, nobody would have a problem with that. Nobody. Then if it said, well, they killed all the men and the women... Uh, you know, like, which I get it. I mean, I'm a man. We probably deserve to be killed. But, but if, if, if it's the men and the women, well, now, you know, that's a little shady. But the fact that it's the men, the women, and the children, that's the problem, isn't it? It's the problem. We just can't get over that. Now, think of how much of my life I devote to children. I mean, I love children as much as anybody could. That's the problem. Why? Why is that a problem? It's a problem because deep down inside, we think that the children are Innocent, don't we? We believe the children are innocent. But the women, they're probably sort of innocent, and the men, they're clearly not innocent. Isn't that, isn't that strange? You know, guys, seriously, we ought to be offended by that, but it's true. There's plenty of places in Scripture where it says they went in and killed all the men. Nobody cares. It's totally fine. You can wipe the men out, no problem. It's not until you move to the women and the kids that we have an issue. You see, the reason that the text is problematic 
is that we have virtually no grasp on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. The problem is not us trying to figure out why would God do that. The problem is we don't understand how holy God is and what it is to be holy. And we definitely don't understand how grievous sin is to the heart of God. You see, we think if, if, you, if, if you have some anything less than a biblical understanding of sin, it's going to cause you all kinds of problems in a place like this. It's just exposing our problem. That's what it does. You think, you see, subconsciously, we think God exists for our welfare. And that He ought to help us feel good about ourselves. And the reason that you can know for sure that we believe that is very simple. All you have to do is notice the verses that we frame and hang on walls. All the verses that you've ever seen hanging on a wall and ever seen framed are all about making us feel better. That's what they are. And all the verses about the horrific nature of sin or the utter holiness of God, we don't put those, we, you've never, you can't buy that at Lifeway. It doesn't exist. If they made one, it's in the clearance rack because ain't nobody ever bought it. You've never seen a verse like Joshua 6.21 or even anything remotely like that on a t-shirt. No. Because what we're saying is subconsciously we're conveying something that we believe about God and what He's to do. You see, most people envision God in their debt. We don't say it this way. As if he owes us life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, it, it, we immediately, the problem with, with Jericho, which is not a problem at all. Our problem with Jericho is what we align ourselves with. Now just follow me for a second. When you read Joshua 6.21, And if it causes something to kick back inside of you, why? What are you instinctively believing about Jericho? You, why, do you, why do you naturally just think, well, well, what did they do wrong? And they're innocent and they're... Well, let me put it to you this way. You've heard me use this illustration so many times because it's so wonderful. When you watch Animal Planet, why is it that so many people can't watch the lion devour the antelope? Why does that bother you? Why don't you... Why don't you look at a, at a lion chasing an antelope and then side with the lion and go, go get them. And think, I bet that lion's got little cubs at home and they're hungry and they're about to have a giant steak dinner. 
And it's awesome. Why are we, oh, look at the poor antelope. It's dinner. Why do we align with, we just assume something about as if the antelope has a higher value than the lion. So we just assume, why do we have a problem with Jericho? Let's talk about the Canaanites for a second, okay? This will be real fun. I had to make parents take their kids out of the room before we got to this Wednesday night. This will be good. So the Canaanites, they were wonderful. You'd want to live next door to them. You'd want them in your neighborhood. You'd want to go to Jericho on vacation. They were the most depraved, debauched, degenerate people in the ancient world. Now, I'm just going to give you a tiny little sliver of Canaanite life, okay? First of all, their religious foundation, obviously, uh, everything was around your, your food and your crops, and they believed that the productivity of the land, the fertility of the land, depended on the sexual relationship between Baal and his female counterpart, Ashtoreth. Now, sometimes you'll read uh, Ashtoreth will be called Anath or Athart, or you remember when uh, Josiah became king at a young age and his grandfather Manasseh had built all the high places and the Ashtoreth poles, that's what that is. So Baal, the male god, so here's what they believed. They believed that the more... uh, prominent the physical relationship between Baal and his female goddess were, that's what made the crops grow. Okay, I can run with that. I mean, it's a little weird, but... But here's where it gets good. This is how you know man came up with the, the religion. Now, how do you, how do you get Baal and Asherah to be more active together? How do you spur them on to make sure that the crops are going to be good? How do, you, how do you create rain? How do you create good sunshine? How do you make the soil good? Well, glad you asked because they have a solution for that. It was wonderful. They taught that people would actually motivate the gods to fornicate by doing it themselves. And it gets better. The way that you motivated... The fornication of the god Baal was not by going home to your spouse. No, no. That, interestingly enough, had no bearing on the crop's yield whatsoever. The only way that you could increase the yield of the crops is you had the men would go to the temple where there were the oxymoron of all times, sacred prostitutes. And by visiting the sacred prostitutes, that would create and motivate Baal to be more active with his goddess. Therefore, the crops would grow and there'd be a higher yield. 
And so if there was any kind of concern about the yielding of the crops, then the men would go around to all the other men and, and get them and say, come on, you know, you got to go to the temple. We got to go to the temple. Oh, I didn't even know there was a kid here. Sorry. You got to go to the temple. You got to go to the temple. It's going to get way worse. Oh, it's just a lovely situation. Now, the good news is, is that you don't have to believe the Bible to believe what I just told you. You know why? Because secular archaeologists have excavated all of these things. We have, we have literally hundreds upon hundreds of little idols that verify everything I'm talking about. They know this was what the Canaanite worship was all about. We, we know for sure exactly what was going on. And so they're doing all this stuff. Then, as if that wasn't enough, they introduced the worship of the god Molech. Molech was a, he was a wonderful god. He was a god who had these two giant bronze hands that, that were palms up. And so he stood like this with his hands out and these giant palms up and they would build an altar right here at his foot, at his feet. And so fire would burn up at his feet and he would hold these big giant bronze palms out. And so when they wanted the blessing of Molech, they would take their infant children and they would put them in those red hot palms and they would sacrifice their kids. Now, don't shake your heads at me because a minute ago you were mad because they all got killed. Now, all of a sudden, y'all are like, yeah, you know what? They need to die. See, hold on. You can't switch and start rooting for the lion all of a sudden. I know y'all was on the antelope. You were mad because God killed kids. And now, all of a sudden, that you know they're roasting them. Yes, that's what they're doing. Now, let me take you to Leviticus 18. Because I want, you to, I want you to see where... Look at what God says. Leviticus 18. Now, this is way before. Beginning in verse 20. The Lord says, Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Molech. You got that? That's why it says you should not let any of your descendants. That means do not put your children in the fire of Molech. God goes on. Nor shall you profane the name of the God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these things the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. You understand? We're just scratching the surface of what's going on in Canaan. This isn't what's going on with Israel. This is God saying, you're about to go over there and see things you never knew existed. You're about to go into a land that has a people that you can't even imagine the level of depravity over there. So when you go over there, you're going to wipe out every man, every woman, and every child because one thing's going to be for sure. They're not going to infiltrate into you. You get starting to get the picture now? For the land is defiled 
God said. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land, the land vomits out its inhabitants. You see, the problem is, is that when we read Joshua 6.21, all we think about is us. All we think about is what we know. What we fail to realize is that a loving, patient, long-suffering God has been waiting generation after generation after generation for people to repent of their wickedness, which they refuse to do. And time after time after time, he extended a hand to Canaan. And time after time after time, they spit in his face. And so God is not doing one thing. God is doing multiple things at one time. And what's happening through Joshua is simply God's judgment taking place upon people. Now listen. Would you be upset? Would you be upset if God didn't send Joshua and the armies across and obliterate the Canaanites, and God just let them die a natural death and burn in hell for all eternity? Huh? You see, there's more to the story. It's not like Joshua marched into Mayberry. We have to guard ourselves from what the flesh would deceive us to believe. The judgment of the Canaanites. Listen. Come on. There we go. The judgment of the Canaanites came after remarkable and gracious patience and opportunity for repentance. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God called the Canaanites to repentance. The Amorites. And you know what? They snubbed him then. They snubbed him every time after then, all the way until Joshua chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, the Bible says, It is not because of your righteousness. This is what God's telling his people. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprighteousness of your heart that you go in and possess their land but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers. God goes the extra mile to tell you, me, and Joshua, and the Canaanites, listen, let's get something straight here. You are not going over there and obliterating these people because you're better than them or because of your righteousness or any other reason. This is my holiness and righteousness playing out across the face of the earth. That's what's happening. God had given them multiple times chances to repent. But you know what? They presumed on God's patience. And they took it as indifference. And they indulged in ever greater and greater sin. This is If you just look at what God tells us about Canaan, this is what you'll find is that from the first time he mentions the Canaanites until you get to Joshua, their their depravity continually grows. Listen, they're not satisfied. They're not satisfied with their temple prostitutes and Baal and Asherah. Oh, no. 
Then they, they come up with Molech. And they come up with all sorts of perversions and all sorts of, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And the longer it goes on, the worse it gets. You see, they're really not the little antelope, are they? It's, they're not so cute anymore, are they? Which is not my opinion and your opinion has nothing to do with this. I'm just simply saying that isn't it interesting that with just a little conversation we begin to see some clarity on something that just seems so utterly harsh and unjust. We know in fact that on those occasions when Israel did not obey God's order to exterminate the Canaanites, that every single time without fail, the latter always polluted the former. Do you know what never happened? What never happened was God's people didn't fully extinguish the Canaanites and then the Canaanites actually assimilated into the Israelites and, and the Canaanites actually rose up and started walking with God. No, no, it was always the opposite. God's people always started to become less faithful and started getting into all sorts of things they shouldn't get into. Every single time, it, it always drug them down. It never pushed them up. Never. So, the kings of Judah, I'm talking about Israel. You read the book of 2 Kings? You seen what's going on there? 2 Kings chapter 16, the kings of Judah, they're sacrificing children. Wonder where they got that idea from. You've seen 2 Kings chapter 23, the sexual perversion that started running rampant through the people of God. Wonder where they got all that from. Canaanites. I would suggest, therefore, that the mystery in Jericho is not that God would exterminate them all, but that He didn't exterminate them all sooner than He did. That's the mystery. The mystery is that they were allowed to exist as long as they did. You know what God did when they were building their city? Let them build it. You know what God did when they were fortifying their walls? Let them fortify them. You know what God did when they were digging their aqueducts? When they were, when they were making their weapons? When they were, you know what God did when they were doing all the things that they were doing? Let them. He patiently waited. He gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. So, really, why is Joshua 6.21 problematic? Because I'm pretty sure 
than all the people that say, well, you know, I'm, I just like the New Testament. I mean, I'm just going to, I just stay in the New Testament. I don't even know what to do with the Old Testament. <laughs> okay. So, Jesus shows up on the scene. And what's the message again? Oh, yeah. Repent or you will all likewise perish. That's the New Testament. Repent. Or you will all likewise perish. The same message the Canaanites heard and ignored. The same message the people today hear and ignore. It's the same message. The amazing thing is not that God exterminated the, the Canaanites. No. The amazing thing is that God hasn't exterminated us. That's really what's shocking. When I read Joshua chapter 6 and when I think about what was going on in Canaan, I'm, I'm amazed that God doesn't exterminate us. And the reason why why do we have the freedom to wake up this morning and breathe air that doesn't belong to us, that we did nothing to deserve, earn, or create. But by the grace of God, He lets us breathe His air. Take up space on His property, which we have no right to, no stake in, claim to in any way. It belongs to Him. But He allows us, by the grace that flows freely from His heart, Because all the wrath and the judgment that we deserve has been poured out on His Son. You see, a good place to know God is Joshua 6.21. That's a good place to know God. It's a good place to gain a foothold into who God is and what makes Him tick. Because if we just say that He's holy, if we just say that He's righteous, if we just say that He's utterly just, it doesn't really do the trick. Because what we mean when we say that is not what He means. He means something far greater than that. He means that to Him, sin is not a joke. It's never been a joke. It's never going to be a joke. And anybody who thinks that any sin is a joke to Him is going to be painfully, painfully wrong. He doesn't, he doesn't think it's funny. He doesn't think that 
our ingenuity and all of our ideas about who He is and how to relate to Him. He's not amused by those things. But He remarkably suffers us. He suffers us. He knew every single thing about you and me. And he still killed his son. Think about that for a minute. He knew you. He knew you. He knew you. He knew everything about you. And he willingly killed. His son. That is astonishing. I don't know how you feel about that. But I can tell you how I feel about that. I can't believe he did that for me. I don't even come close to deserving that. There is no way, there is no way that I can conceive of a love so great that a perfect, righteous, holy God would slaughter his son for somebody like So the same, the same God, the same God in the Old Testament that commands the destruction of Jericho for the purity of his people. Because I just want you to leave here tonight with a heart filled with gratitude. A heart that's overwhelmed with the love of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God. And I want you to be utterly and completely secure in the fact that anybody that tries to tell you that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament or make excuses for anything that's in the Scripture that's politically incorrect or not tolerable or tolerant or anything else is a fool. They're a fool. Because the same God who in the Old Testament commands the destruction of Jericho for the purity of his people. He could have, he had every right to obliterate them himself. He just chose to use whatever means he wanted to use. Right? If everyone in Jericho died because of a flood, would you be mad? What if there was a giant lightning storm and everybody got hit by lightning? What if there was a, a tsunami or a tornado or a hurricane? God can do anything He wants to, any way He wants to, anytime He wants to. He simply used Joshua and his people because He wanted to teach them something at the same time that He was accomplishing something else. But He had every right to do that. And he did that making sure that they understood that the destruction of these people 
was for the purity of his people. That same God sends his own son and commands his destruction for the purity of his church. So Joshua chapter 6. It's not intended for us to sit around and debate whether or not God is worthy to be followed. No. It's not. Though I have debated this topic many times. It's simply a waste of time. It is to lead us to see that the entire world is sinful and under the wrath of God, but that in love, Jesus takes all wrath upon himself that we might live. You see, I was once running wild. The Bible says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so when I go home and I watch Animal Planet and I see that antelope running across the plain, I think I know what it's like to be that antelope. Because I was running and running and running. And the lion was chasing me. And the lion was gaining ground on me. And just like that little antelope, I started wearing down and I started wearing thin and I started to, I started to give up. And you can sort of see that moment when the animal just knows that they're had and they're not getting away and it's over. And I know that feeling. And I know that lion was right there and just as he was about to devour me, Jesus came along and obliterated him. And I closed my eyes and clenched my teeth and waited for the ripping of my flesh and my life and suddenly realized Something beyond myself had intervened and took the lion down. Not because I deserved it or I earned it, but only because he loves me. So let's just make sure that we're identifying with whatever it is we're looking at, with God's point of view, not our own. And it will be very helpful to us as we seek to understand the wonder and the splendor of the God of the Scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we're grateful.